Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another week. This is the Live Life Aggressive Show. Sincere Hogan got my man Mike Mall on the other side. Hey, man, really excited about our guest today, man. It's been a minute since we talked to him, but um, every time he comes on, he brings a lot of great info, and I don't think today is going to be any different. You know? Yeah, I mean, he's he's best known for exposing Tim Ferriss as the ultimate four-hour a-hole. But in addition to that, <laughs> he actually has a lot of yeah. great information about training, nutrition, <laughs> supplementation. One of our most popular listener favorites. So we're going to go ahead and introduce Thomas Inkledon. Welcome back, Thomas. Hey, guys. Thank you so much. Great to have you. You've got a lot yeah, of interesting so stuff New Year, man. Yeah, Happy New Year. Uh, thanks, you too, guys. It's, uh, it's weird, man. It just feels like... Um, Time is going by faster the older I get. Yeah. <laughs> Which can be a scary I thing. So. <laughs> I remember, I remember four years in, in high school. I remember four years was an eternity. And it was also eternity in college. <laughs> you know, I did, but then, after, <laughs> and then after that, I think when I hit 30, four years just went by like that, like 26 to 40. And now it's, I mean, if, if you don't really take charge of your time and make things happen ASAP, Years just get away from you. Your whole life will get away from you. You'll see that. I think it would be really interesting to talk to older people who just didn't pull the trigger on anything, and their their right. life just got away from them. Like talk to them about the stuff, you know, not on their deathbed. Like, okay, let's talk about those regrets. Why you should have a chance to fix? Why you have a chance to fix some of them? You know, let's yeah. do an intervention. Yeah. You know, a regret intervention. You know, I want to wait. I don't want to sit there and interview them like on their deathbed. Like, ah, oh. so okay, you got about an hour left, man. You want to talk about some things that you can get taken care of? You know, yeah, my <laughs> about an hour letting show. you in here, letting you in here to talk to me is my big regret. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that makes me think when I was younger. You know, I would see my guy friends that were dating the hottest women, and I would always be like, hey, how did you meet that girl? So thinking, I learned from them, you know, how to meet really attractive women. Yeah. Never seen it work for me, though. And then as I got <laughs> older, and I started seeing all my friends get divorced, <laughs> then I would be like, with the guys that were married, like, and were still together, I'd be like, you know, yeah. did you guys figure out to stay together? So the, the the point I just want to make is how our perspectives change as we get older and mature, you know, and yeah. I've been, I guess, more recently is I would meet guys that I would say, man, this guy's got a, he's got a good work life. So whether he runs his own business or works for someone else, either way, he's happy there. He's not stressing out and, you know, ready to have a heart attack any moment. He's got a yeah. beautiful family where everybody's, you know, doing something productive and happy. And yeah. he's still, you know, with his wife, walking and holding hands, you know, that kind of stuff. And yeah. as I see that, what I realize, that is, ex it's extremely hard to balance all of those areas out. And uh, it's a lot of a lot of different people in your in your circle of influence to kind of please, you know, between work people and personal people and everything else you have going on. And still well, work the, out, think, uh, stay healthy. I think the important part you made is everyone is doing something, right? You talked about the family where everyone's doing something productive. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point. I think a lot of couples deteriorate where one person is doing a lot, they're driven, they're making stuff happen, and maybe the other person is is marginalized to a supplemental role or or what what would you say in best acting? Supporting, yeah, the best supporting yeah, whatever. Yeah, best supporting role, cast, you know? exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think if everyone is doing something that's interesting, everyone's excited about their life, right? So when you come together, it's it's this mutual excitement as opposed to one person's going on and on and on about all the great things they're doing and the other person is well, wow, all I did was watch TV today or, you know, you can't be friends with people where you meet up with them and 
you have all this stuff going on and they don't have anything going on. It's just just too one-sided. Eventually, it's just not going to work. Yeah, that's the challenge, you know, when you got friends from, let's say, high school and now you're, you're, you know, you're reconnecting X years later and they're still talking about high school and you're talking about your next discovery you're planning, you know, it's like, dude, let that home run go, man, move on, you know. (laughs) (laughs) My college friends I meet up with, I I had some college friends I hadn't seen for a long time that I met up with in Los Angeles when I lived out there. And it, the first meeting was cool, right? You're just catching up on whatever you've been doing since that, since the last time you saw them. And then you're talking about some fun stories from back in the day. So that was fun. The second meeting, though, got uncomfortable <laughs> because there was nowhere to go. It's like you already talked about everything that you did in the past. You already caught up on what you've been doing since then. And now there's nowhere to go. And then that was usually the end of it. <laughs> you're like, all right, talk to you in 10 years. You know? <laughs> All of a sudden, you're yeah, that with, a great storyteller. Uh, They're all listening to you now. You don't talk about your life, and you're like, wait a minute. Well, I feel like I'm at a campfire. I'm the great griot all of a sudden. It's like, okay, dude, it's your turn to talk. It's like, nah, man, I'm just listening to you. That's like the worst line to ever hear oh in a conversation. No, nah, man, I'm just listening to you. Like, I've been talking for an hour, dude. Seriously? <laughs> you don't have anything to contribute? <laughs> I'm tired of hearing myself talk. <laughs> That happened to me at one of Tim Larkin's parties, actually, years ago. He had some housewarming party. He and Sasha moved into a new place. And yeah. I don't know how it happened, but all of a sudden, I was talking to one person, and then someone else showed up, and then another person showed up. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I realized I'm giving a lecture. You know? <laughs> I'm talking about a hormone stuff, and there's six people. And I find, like you said, since I stopped talking after a while, and then no one had anything to say. It was just quiet. I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'll keep talking. <laughs> Well, that donation bucket, all of a sudden, like, all right, here we go. <laughs> Since I'm giving a lecture, yeah, exactly. we're going to chip in. <laughs> well, if you wanted to get rid of them quickly, that's what you would say. So, you know what? People pay me a lot for this kind of information, so I'm going to have to go ahead and start charging you guys. You whip out your phone. You're like, I can take your credit cards here. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, man. So, so Thomas, man, you have a lot of great stuff to talk to you, talk about today. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, thinking about balance, one it kind of uh, reminds me of a, a short story, then I'll kind of lead into some of the stuff about sleep. Okay. And so um, when I was, uh, I was a graduate research student, I was at the Department of Biophysics and Physiology at the University of Miami Medical School, and this is going back into like the 90s. And uh, I was involved in a project where I was measuring fluorescent uh, light emissions off these proteins. And so basically... I'm in like this closet that we call a research lab. There's no outside windows and there is no visible light. I got to turn off all the lights. I got to basically work in the dark, basically. And um, this is going on where I would get into the office before the sun came up and I would leave way past the sun, you know, set. And about a year and a half into this, my joints are killing me. I'm tired all the time. And, you know, my strength is, like, leaving me. It's, like, flowing away from my body like a negative key energy force leaving me, you know. <laughs> and I'm, like, so I go and I see this doctor at the hospital or that's associated with the medical school. And, like, hey, doc, do you think there could be anything going on with the fact that I don't sleep anymore since I'm working around the clock to get this research done in a timely fashion? It's like, oh, no, there's no research on that. It's like, oh, well, what about the fact I don't get any sunlight either? You know, I haven't seen the sun in so long, I think I'm afraid I'm going to burn up. It's like, no, no, no research on that. So I'm like, well, I got to change what I'm doing because what I'm doing just isn't working. I'm, di- I'm basically killing myself and I can't see uh, you know, a future going this way. 
So I go to my professors, these are the laboratory directors, I'm, hey, look, I'm dying here, and I can't keep functioning this way, so I'm going to have to change the parameters of how I'm doing my research so that this is now, you know, more like a nine-to-five job, and I'm not here, like, walk in and never leave, like a roach motel or something. I actually need to have a life outside of here. I need to see the sun. So after I shared this with them, their response, of course, was that I lack commitment, (laughs) Because I actually cared about my own health. I lack commitment in my research. So uh, I I basically then said, all right, I I could appreciate that perspective. But since no one here is worried about my health, I got to be the guy that's (laughs) in charge of, you know, taking control and making sure this health is dressed. So now I start, you know, getting normal sleep and I start seeing the sun and this thing. And all of a sudden... I started getting superhuman strong. I started kicking ass. And now, of course, everybody around me goes, dude, what drugs are you taking? How do I get them? And I'm like, actually, you know, I'm not taking any drugs. But at that time, I didn't have much money. If I had whey protein, I was lucky. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm just getting rest. You know, I'm not, I don't feel overtrained and banged up. My joints aren't killing me all the time. And so a lot of guys, of course, like, there's no way all you do is get sleep and sunlight and you're fine. Like, well, if you didn't have it for two years, maybe it could. Well, now we fast forward, and now I own a medical center. I have 40 medical offices. I have doctors working for me, and we can measure any molecule in the human body. You know, this didn't happen overnight. It took a long time to get here. But now we actually measure and test people in their home while they're sleeping, and we see all kinds of issues connected to issues when there's a problem with sleep. And so if someone has either sleep apnea, which is basically think of it as like they have trouble breathing or there's an airflow issue, or if they have uh, insomnia, which is kind of like you can't turn your mind off, so you're thinking about stuff. Um, Either way, that affects their sleep cycle, and the consequence of that is they're going to see some glucose dysfunction issues. One of the fastest ways that I could, I've seen patients raise their hemoglobin A1C levels is by cut corners on their sleep. Mm-hmm. And then um, the thing about that is people are usually tested by doctors to see if they have a risk for diabetes. And so the hemoglobin A1C level is high or goes up, and a doctor's thinking, all right, you need a medication to bring this under control. And, it, and there's nothing wrong with that approach. The problem is if the doctor doesn't know, hey, this guy's not sleeping or has a sleep issue, it's kind of the wrong tool to, to really help this person. Yeah, it could work, but the best tool in that situation would be improve this guy's sleep. And um, uh, unfortunately, the way insurance works sometimes, they typically require that someone goes and sleeps at an outside sleep center where they're going to hook up all kinds of wires and stuff, but you're in a strange bed. <laughs> So now right. you're in a strange environment, strange bed. I actually went through that experience wired. twice. Yeah. You wired it all, like, who, who normally sleeps? Well, actually, I have slept with wires all over me many times, but that's a different reason. We don't need any of those shocking reveals. You know, that's right. right. Shocking story <laughs> reveals. You, you've, slept in the same bed as, you've slept in the same bed as Tim Larkin before, but we don't need to hear about that. <laughs> Let's just say Tim's a friendly guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's not say that. Okay. <laughs> so, 
any way you're wired up and exchanging sincere environments. takes a lot of course. Sincere takes a lot of courses with Tim. You don't want to you don't want to scare him <laughs> off. You're, you're messing me up now. So I can't That's right. Yeah, you're gonna be standing in a, in a workshop and you're gonna be looking down instead of looking up and paying attention. Nope. Like that's where those, <laughs> that's where those wire that's where those wire marks came from. Okay. No, that makes sense. <laughs> So what happens is uh, okay. you're in a strange environment and you got this stuff yeah. around you, and so the process actually interferes with the sleep cycle, and then mm-hmm. you get data back that isn't really accurate. So generally speaking, I would prefer someone to get tested at home in the bed they sleep in most of the time. Now, if it's someone that travels a lot in different hotels, uh, then I would maybe test them at home and then maybe test them on the road because sometimes you won't get accurate data, you know, if someone's not using something consistently. And from there, we would figure out, um, like acutely, I would have someone uh, maybe use a CPAP uh, to just make sure there's airflow. And then over time, I would, depending on how I would interact with them, I would try to teach them exercises that helps their brain better control their, let's say, facial anatomy. So yeah. now they don't have the relaxation of the soft palate or some other tissues that obstructs the airflow. Um, what will happen a lot of times, uh, I'll have guys come in and they'll say, oh, I just bought this dental device, or I'm going to get surgery and stuff like that. And my experience on you know seeing what happens afterwards is most of the time that does not do a good job. Uh, yeah. It creates more problems in someone's future than what it solved. So I share that because when, when a lot of times people have a sleep issue, they go into a surgeon. So, of course, that surgeon may only offer surgical options. And my advice would always be hold off on the surgery and look at other things. Like, for example, um, lots of people have uh, organisms growing in their mouth or in their nose, and those organisms create inflammatory reactions that make it more difficult to breathe. It's kind of like you know um, congesting them. Those are yeah. tests that could be done for like 200 bucks, you know, and now you could find out what's going on and then properly treat it as opposed to doing surgery, you know, which would take a lot more time and usually a lot more money to deal with. What, what about the inability that you can fall asleep, but the inability to stay in a deep sleep state where you're frequently getting up and then you have a hard time going back? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so part of that, you know, would come from uh, – like so, so here, what happens is um, I would have uh, someone that has those, let's say, that's experiencing that. They would sit down with Dr. Anderson, and then she kind of goes through like a very detailed uh, series of questions. So we kind of get a sense of what's going on, like what's the trigger. <clears throat> so sometimes what happens is if someone is choking in their sleep, that that uh, that choking sensation kind of uh, initiates like a like a life and death type of stress response. Yeah. Someone is starting to fall asleep, they choke out, they wake up, and surprisingly, a lot of people are not aware of that. So well, now that jolt, it's skyrocketed cortisol and epinephrine, and so, well, they're not going to go to sleep after that. They're ready to run a race. You know, they're not, yeah. they're not ready to yeah. relax. That, so that that's a common thing we see, and many times I'll ask a guy, hey, do you snore? He'll say, no, not at all, never, something like that. Then I look at his wife and I ask her, does your husband snore? And the wife says, every night I can't go to sleep <laughs> yeah. because he snores so loud. And so not, you know, some guys do know they snore, but, but a lot of people don't. And what's, uh, yeah. what's 
shocking to me is how many women also snort at oh, home yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, that's a scary that's a scary thing to hear too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but when you hear a woman snore like a grizzly bear, that's quite disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the uh, one of the things that kind of leads us into just a little bit is that um uh, you know, I, I spent some time analyzing all the sales uh, done by every drug company that sells a weight loss drug, uh-huh. every supplement company, um, as far as uh, like gross revenue for weight loss supplements in the supplement industry, every mm-hmm. diet, every gym, and anything, let's say, that could be very broadly interpreted as weight loss. So now we pool all that money, you know, all those, all that revenue from all these companies. You just add it all up. So this is uh, around the United States and also worldwide. So you have these, you know, billions and billions of dollars that have been generated or, or let's say sales made or revenues, you know, generated. And now we look at, despite all these companies with all these different strategies, now you compare that with the rate of obesity or overweight in any country in the world. But typically I, I focus on the United States and then I look yeah. at other data from other countries and you find there's zero impact. So hmm. if you took every weight loss drug from every weight, um, let's say, drug company that sells drugs for weight loss, every supplement, every diet, every gym that's selling gym memberships, every workout, you know, all the CrossFit stuff combined with all the other, you know, 24-hour fitness and all these other gyms, add yeah. up all that data. So this is a lot of people spending a lot of money. And what you see is that's had zero impact. So as diets have come and gone, as gyms have come and gone out of business and restarted or new gyms have come online, new weight loss machines, all this stuff, it has had zero impact on uh, weight gain in the United States and in pretty much every country in the world. And the reason for that is it's not a single problem. It's not a single problem that's going to require a single tool. It's a very complicated problem that requires a lot of tools at once. And the way most people approach the problem, they kind of fall in love with a treatment or they fall in love with a technology without ever knowing if that technology would benefit them. And so an example would be if I put oil in my car and then my car runs better and I tell you guys, hey, I just put oil in my car. You don't instantly run out to your automobile and throw oil in the engine. <laughs> you would say, wait, yeah. this car doesn't need any oil, you know? Right. So that, that makes it very logical with a car, but when it comes to our own bodies, what do most people do is they use an outside variable to make a decision that affects their inside. So they got an external cue, oh, you know, my buddy says this worked for him, so I'm going to do it for me. But they have different right, genetics right. and different microbiome. And so <laughs> as a result of that, because you have this increased body mass, you're going to have more and more people that are going to have, you know, anatomical dimensions that change that are going to make it difficult to sleep. And right. I looked at stuff on the web. I hear uh, people say, hey, I heard this stuff about light and heard this stuff about, you know, different um, things you can do. And I think some of it can be beneficial. But generally speaking, if someone has issues with airflow, um, they're not sleeping, period, you know, as well as they could. And so whether or not there's blue light or cell phone lights and other stuff in the room, that is a much it's, – it's got a minor impact. So the first well, the, the, the airflow is interesting because a lot of people feel that they have a lot of anxiety, right? And that's why they have a hard time sleeping. But it also could be they could have anxiety because of poor airflow, and they're not yeah. even thinking of that as the underlying cause. feel like you're choking yeah. or something like that, so you're constantly in that fight-or-flight mode. You're just like, oh, yeah. I can't breathe, you know? Yeah so, yeah, so generally speaking, like if you just looked at someone and without regard – 
it used to be thought years ago, okay, if your body fat is higher, you're more likely to have, you know, sleep apnea. Well, mm-hmm. now you got all these pro bodybuilders and NFL guys. They got sleep apnea mm-hmm. and they got abs. They're shredded. They're lean. There's right, not, you right. know, so body fat is not an issue. Um, and there's lots of anecdotal reports of, you know, Mr. Olympia competitors that have to sleep sitting upright because they have so much mass. So then they started changing the approach, and what they really started finding is that for uh, people when their neck circumference starts getting 16 and a half, 17 inches or wider um, or larger, that that's when there starts to be an increase in where basically there's so much mass, however you lay, there's going to be some compression of the airway. Yeah. When you get a guy that's huge, he's got a 20-inch neck, Chances are pretty high. It's going to be a lot of mass there. It's going to really, you know, uh, mess up airflow. So then the question is, you know, what, how do you correct this in a way that creates less, stre- you know, less problems and stress for this person? And one thing I will say with anxiety and certain other things that people feel, let's say, psychologically, a lot of this stuff is, um, you know, whether you think it's in your mind, whether you think it's in your body, or whether you think it's, um, you know, a feeling or an emotion, it's all connected. It's the same organism, right, that's basically holding all this stuff. So it's very difficult to know, you know, did someone get anxiety and then that trigger problems with eating and then that trigger weight gain and that can trigger problems with airflow or acutely to someone choking out and now they're getting anxious because they have to go to sleep and they know subconsciously they're going to choke out. Like there's a yeah. lot of different ways these, these let's say, these arrows go. They go... You know, in a, like a, it's kind of like a circle, and then you're asking someone to say, "Where's the beginning and the end of a circle, where it's continuously connected?" So I, I yeah. share that because uh, years ago, you know, when I was younger, my strategy to cope with stress would have been, okay, like I didn't have enough time in my day to get all my schoolwork done and my other work and my research, et cetera, and still work out hard. So I just wouldn't go to sleep, and I would just keep doing more and more and more, and I was able to tough it through and essentially get by on, uh, let's just say, uh, inadequate sleep or, you know, a poor level of sleep. And as I've been looking at the data, now I have an opportunity to test lots of people. Um, One of the fastest ways to harm someone is to interfere with the sleep cycle. And the other thing that's really been striking for me is, you know, we hear over the years how how powerful testosterone is, you know, so like if a guy's taking testosterone that could help him, you know, add muscle, lose body fat, when, you know, doing an appropriate way with other strategies like, you know, exercise, lifting weights. But if a guy is taking testosterone and he doesn't get enough sleep, he could still have erectile dysfunction, which basically tells you how much stronger sleep is than testosterone. In oh, no doubt. It could negate the, you know, the benefits, if you will. So well, I've, I've, I've experienced that myself for sure. Anytime sleep yeah. is off for a couple of days, sex drive is is and is non-existent. It's almost zero. Exactly. Exactly. It's gone. but it becomes it becomes like a nine to five. It's like you can still show up for the job. Doesn't mean that you can perform well. <laughs> 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 you, know, you might still so you have, get you have to really focus now. Like, let me really focus on. Yeah, you got to pick and choose. Like, okay, I can get it up, but don't expect me to like put it in in motion very very well. <laughs> Or I can move a lot, but it won't necessarily be up. So you got to pick one. I mean, which one do you want? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, do you want the drums or do you want the drumstick? I mean, you got to pick which one you want. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's interesting that you brought that up, you know, Thomas, because I, I actually want—I had heard on um, another podcast 
I'm on Jocko Willick's um, podcast, and he had brought up something about sleep, uh, like a certain amount of sleep being very genetic. And what I'm saying about that is, you know, we've we've always heard that, you know, you need to get eight hours of, of sleep and then, you know, be more specific, get eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. And then it went from like seven to nine hours, you know, kind of had that little buffer right there. And now, you know, he had brought up a point that, you know, no matter what, throughout his life, he's never really been able to sleep eight hours straight, you know, he sleeps pretty much, I think like five hours or six hours, something like that, six hours at the most, but yet he, he, fun- he feels like he functions fine. And I was going to ask you, is there any research that can back that up where any, what he brought up was the fact that it's always been like that with just about anybody in his family, his father, grandfather, anyone in his family, pretty much that's pretty much what their sleep patterns were like five to six hours at the most. And, you know, Pretty much, I mean, like I said, I don't know him like my daily, you know, listen to him or talk to this guy or anything like that and know what his daily functions are like, but it seems like he's pretty on point. But, of course, you know, when we're doing shows or whatever else, we're going to show people what we need to show them and not show them necessarily any of our weaknesses or whatever, especially when you have platforms based on how strong and how much of a badass you are, you know, and how, you know, on point you are with everything. So I'm just asking you, is there any research to back that up where it could be something where genetically, you know, some of us can't, you know, we don't function very well with, eight hours of sleep uninterrupted, whereas you can really, you can function for years upon a time on and on and on with five hours and six hours and still have those same traits as if someone who would have seven to nine hours of well, you know, uninterrupted sleep and and function on the same, in the same way. Is that even any research to even back that up? Is there anything that even links to that? Yeah. So, um, so sleep is genetically controlled. That part is pretty accurate. Um, but I could tell you that I've had every gene in my body tested. So I've had 22,000 genes tested. And uh, when I talk to people, oftentimes I say stuff about genetics. When I ask them, oh, did you have your genetics done? Usually it's no, or it's like some simple panel like a 23andMe, which I think is garbage and deceptive. Um, so they didn't really have, you know, the genetic stuff done, they're simply going by their family history. And, you know, that's the old school way of looking at stuff. So years ago, we would say, you know, did your parents have a heart attack or your grandparents have a heart attack? And then, okay, so you have an increased risk. Today, we have the capability of measuring molecular mechanisms with such detail, I could very quickly see if something is genetic or not. And the point I want to make is 80% of the time, it is not genetic. And that's a rough number. There's going to be some fluctuations with that. But I have, you know, um, men, you know, Indian men, so not American Indian men, but, men, you know, Indian men from uh, other country that has said, you know, I have diabetes in my family. You know, three, four generations, everybody's had diabetes. I test these guys and I find they got issues with chromium metabolism, which can lead to diabetes, but it's not genetic. It's more an issue of their lifestyle. When I test people um, that say, you know, I, I get by on, let's say, five hours of sleep and I feel great. Mm-hmm. When I ask them, oh, what accuracy, what balance, what coordination testing have you done? I get blank stares like, what is that? So... When someone and, uh, and also, do, do those people? How much coffee do those people drink too? Oh yeah, yeah. If, and someone, if someone says they only sleep five hours per night and they feel great, I'm like, okay, 
do you drink coffee at all? If they say no, then I'm like, okay, I buy it. You know, you're not taking any supplements. You're not taking modifinol. You're not taking ephedrine. You're not taking coffee. Then I'll buy it. <laughs> if they're drinking a pot of coffee or they're taking modifinol or they're taking some kind of upper, you know, then it's just a battle of attrition where it, inevitably you're going to crash at some point. Sure. So there may so people sometimes have uh, tools they've developed to kind of uh, function at the level they're happy with. Right. And they may not be um, considering those tools, you know. I would say that um, there's a, a study was done years ago, and man, I just found interesting in that it was the same guys they tested under different conditions. So imagine you get a bunch of guys, and one-third of those guys are going to be, sleep four hours a night. Then there's going to be a washout period where they sleep however they normally sleep. Then they're going to be crossed over to sleep either 8 or 12 hours. And they're going to be a washout period where they would sleep normally. And then they would be crossed over to the third treatment effect. So, like, guys are being tested in different orders. So, like, I might get 8 hours first. One of you may get 4 hours first. The other guy may get 12 hours first. But eventually, we're going to get all three, you know, time intervals for sleep. And then the, the time intervals will be lined up and then, all the the data that was collected will be organized, and then you're basically every person is compared against themselves during the three time points or the different uh, intervals, and then we look at the group findings. And what they found was that when people when they, when all these were all men when they got 12 hours of sleep, they had the best hormone responses. So there was far more recovery that took place. And so I didn't get a chance to connect with the scientists that did that study because in my mind, when I looked at that, I thought, you know, um, what environment was created for those guys to sleep? Because, you know, like you've ever traveled and you've stayed on a bed where, wow, this bed's comfortable and you just pass out. Yeah. You know, you're going to yeah, yeah. places where this bed is killing my back I'm, and you can't sleep, you're tossing, turning all night. Yeah. Right. So we know just acutely from going to different hotels, you know, that the environment can affect. Well, then, now let's say the bed's comfortable, but let's say there's some kids screaming in the hallway, right? Now, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've, I got friends that are very sensitive to noises around them, and I, then right. I got friends like me. If there was an explosion in the hallway, nope, I'm, I wake up when I wake <laughs> up. <laughs> I'm, not, yeah, I'm not waking up right now because I'm still sleeping. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what happened. You know, where someone else right. would be like up instantly. But having said that, you know, if there was like, um, if I was like uh, babysitting my nieces or nephew, or if there's like a young child in the environment that I'm responsible for, I hear one noise and I'm up like a lightning bolt. So I think there's ways we could modify our sleep behavior when there's something that matters to us more than ourselves, you know. And the common thing is usually a family member or something. Yeah. So, um, yeah. What I would, what I'm looking at doing now is uh, I've been involved in testing different magnetic fields because my belief is that having a magnetic field around you while you sleep for about eight hours will dramatically enhance uh, recovery and optimize hormone responses. And uh, we have um, we have a variety of technologies here. These were all developed by other scientists. I did not develop any of them. I'm just simply I, I was intrigued enough to purchase them, and then I uh, I, I just test you know as people, different people use them. We collect data to see all right what's happening. I was so intrigued that I actually bought one and put it in uh, my own home. 
And uh, so, of course, when people come over, they're like, dude, what the heck is that? Because <laughs> it's not a normal <laughs> thing you're going to see in some guy's bedroom. How, 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 big, <laughs> how big is this thing? What does it look like? How big is this thing? It's um, roughly seven feet long, about oh, wow. oh, three and a half feet Ooh. wide, maybe four. <laughs> and then at the height. So you have shack in your bedroom. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Actually, they did an MTV Cribs episode where he had this huge round bed, and he took one of his kids and threw him, and he threw his kid far, and the kid still landed on the bed. <laughs> like, the bed was so wide, Crazy. the kid could sail through the air and still land on the bed. That's how big it was. <laughs> yeah, when we were we were in uh, my my family and I, my parents, my, my brother and I, we were all in Kenya one time at a game park, checking out animals and so forth, and we stayed at this resort which used to be owned by a serious gun runner. So this guy was loaded. He had tons of money. Anyway, he was arrested. All of his properties were confiscated. And then we walk into the master bedroom, and it was the largest bed I had ever seen. I mean, you could put 10 people on there, which is probably what he did. <laughs> my, mom looks at that. my mom looks at the bed. She's like, why would anyone need the bed this big? <laughs> my dad's like, oh, you're the only one who would think that. You're the only one who would ask that question. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this, bed, this bed was awesome. I mean, I slept on it one night. You could just keep rolling and rolling, and you're not going to fall off the other edge. It was great. I was like, this is an awesome bed. Yeah, it's amazing what's out there. So, uh, what I'm, um, I've tried testing. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen uh, the grounding type stuff, where yeah. it's basically it's like a sheet that has like this. Uh, it's somehow connected to copper wire, and it can go into electric outlet or go into a copper rod that's in the ground. Uh-huh. And the idea is that you're going to somehow get the magnetic field from the Earth's crust through this copper wire, and that's going to influence you as you sleep. And there was a, a study or two that I had read that I thought, oh, it seems promising. I think they're weak designs, but you know, I, I don't expect I don't expect a study to be done perfectly simply because I know how hard it is to do research. And even when I control for everything that I know of, you know, years from now, some other bright guy is going to show something new that we didn't know about before. Yeah. So I look at a lot of this. It's kind of like, you know, you know when you, a guy that sets a world record, he knows eventually some young stud is coming along that's going to break it. It ain't going to yeah. be there forever. So I look at right. research kind of the same way. I'm going to do the best I can right now. But I know sooner or later somebody else is coming along, and this guy's going to be smarter and faster, and he's going to break down. He's going to do his own thing and show that things have changed, you know. So after I tried the grounding stuff, though, I, I couldn't say I felt any difference at all. I started reading all this research about how different, uh, so basically uh, very low magnetic fields can improve our cells, and it seems like the longer our cells were exposed to them, so that's how I started connecting the magnetic fields with sleep, because, you know, where are you going to lay for eight or nine hours when you're sleeping in your bed? So I started looking at ways that I can somehow connect the two. So I don't have the answers, uh, you know, perfectly done or figured out there. But uh, we're definitely on the right track. We got some um, some of these technologies. I could tell you that. Uh, well, what about what about this? What about this with device that you do have? The one you just described. What kind of yeah. benefits have you noticed from that? So essentially, the way the, way the device works is um, it balances out a dysfunction between, you know, let's say, your sympathetic tone and your parasympathetic tone. So uh-huh. 
it's kind of like um, what most people don't realize is uh, how much stress they have. So an example would be, you know, like you go to get a massage, a massage therapist is working on you, and you're like, oh, my God, your traps are rock hard. You know, most people yes. know when they're tense, they kind of shrug their shoulders, just maybe a little bit, maybe a lot. Right. What a lot of people don't realize, though, is the tension is really all over their body, and that tension would be in their hips. It could be around their knees. And one of the ways that tension affects you is it pulls your, your bones closer together. That increases mechanical friction. If you don't have any arthritis, you're, you're probably not going to know that, that you're not going to feel anything. If you do have arthritis, you're going to know, man, I'm getting all this stuff clicking. And what winds up happening is, let's say you get a massage, and now you feel good, but then a day or two later, you're tight again. Right. So the question then is, well, why isn't this holding? And the answer is your nervous system doesn't accept, you know, the relaxed you as normal. The nerve, Your nervous yeah. system accepts you as yeah. tight as normal. Right. Now, what's feeding into that, most of the time it's posture stuff, meaning like where you're sitting or standing, like where, however you spend most of your day. So like for guys that, yeah. that work in transportation, they may be sitting in a vehicle, you know, a car, van, or a truck for a long time. Right. Um, other guys, you know, let's say in retail sales, they may be standing a lot, you know, because they're in front of clients or customers talking about different products. So whatever you spend the most time in, that's probably having the single greatest impact on what's creating tension. Yeah. But there's things like, um, you know, any type of uh, like uh, stuff would, you know, if you have kids and your kids aren't listening to you, that creates a little bit of tension. <laughs> You know, if yeah. you got you know a partner and you and your partner are not seeing eye to eye on, on a matter, you know that creates tension. Mm-hmm. It's all the stuff when it when it adds up, it affects your autonomic nervous system function. So basically, all day long, you have greater sympathetic tone than parasympathetic tone. So you're a little off. Now, if you want to work out, you let's just say you're above normal, like you're not balanced, but you want to feel something beyond that. You're going to go train. So that's why guys then do. You know, pre-workout drinks or things with caffeine or years ago ephedrine, all this kind of stuff. But what that does, though, is it, it gets the sympathetic tone much greater. And, yeah, you're definitely going to feel like, you know, you're going to have a great workout at the moment. But it creates a greater imbalance now. So it, it kind of helps you do a better workout. But then afterwards, it's going to take significantly longer to recover. Yeah. So I started seeing all this stuff, and so I started looking for this tool. So I got this, uh, basically, we got a device that we can create a magnetic field where someone lays on a massage table, and this magnetic field then surrounds them, and kind of based on the uh, the parameters, like if someone came in there, excuse me, if they have like a hip pain, I would set the parameters on the machine for their hip pain. If someone, let's say, had um, anxiety, you know, like I, there's like protocols, let's say all these different medical conditions. And then we would sit accordingly. And they basically relax in the machine for about an hour. And uh, we, we take a bunch of measurements like blood pressure, heart rate, pulse oximetry, and both arms. We do a video of them moving around so we know how they were before, let's say, the use of the machine. And then we do the same exact stuff in the same exact order with the same exact equipment in the same exact location <laughs> afterwards. And then we compare mm-hmm. the two. And I got guys swearing to change their life. And, it, and it's a bit it's a bit comical in a way because as far as I could tell, they look exactly the same, right? Like I get the same guy, same height, same weight, right? When nothing really changed. But he says, man, I feel so much better. And so then we started saying, all right, well, how are we going to really quantify this in a way? So then we started having people work out. So basically... We do this magnetic field therapy, 
and then we have them going to the gym. And a hundred percent of people are setting records doing things they haven't done before. Wow! Uh, sorry, I'm sorry, I, I mis- misstated that. They, they're setting records doing the same movements, but they're doing more reps, sets, and more weight. So when I say they haven't done before, meaning yeah, it's like a, like a lifetime PR, I guess it would be a better way of right. saying it. Right. And I've literally had um, I've had uh, CrossFit um, uh, world champions that were pretty banged up that have come in, do one session. And then go and set a lifetime PR in a snatch, which would then make me ask them, why are you doing snatches when you don't have to do snatches in your competition? <laughs> what's, like, what's the purpose there? Um, and what I just realized, these guys are just they are so conditioned to push their body every workout. Right. So that's a whole nother problem. Like, why do you want to abuse yourself, right, type of thing? Yeah, exactly. Because you yeah. don't have to kill yourself to become a better athlete. What you do need, you need is a stimulus to get you in the right direction. In, in, fact, in, fact, if, in fact, it's paramount that you don't kill yourself in order to get right, a better exactly. Yeah, but reinforcing bad yeah. habits and bad technique, and you're draining your nervous system. Yeah, yeah, but when it, when you get used to that, though, then your standard is is that. You know, I had um years ago, I met a professor from Japan who. Uh, was uh, sharing some data about uh, overtraining, detraining, and let's say uh, let's say healthy levels of training. And um, they basically we tried some of the stuff with athletes at Penn State. And basically, when we toned down the volume of training, and we were taking all kinds of uh, blood markers and measurements on these guys, we could show the athletes now were not getting they weren't overtrained. So that they were getting enough training to stimulate a response, but not enough training that they were overtrained. Every athlete says, I feel like I need to do more. The athletes go and set all kinds of records. And then their response was, well, if I trained harder, I would have done better. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and it just shows you how ingrained it is in people. Like if you do yeah. something and you're not sore, you you then question, well, that must not have been that hard, right? Because you don't feel it. Well, there's, right. there's, there's a lot of bad advice, though, that's perpetuated, such as no pain, no, no gain. No pain, no gain. <laughs> you know, when it's really pain, actually pain, you're going to have no gain. <laughs> you know, yeah, too much right. pain, no gain would be more appropriate, more accurate. So we we get a lot of bad advice. And a lot of times people are incredulous when I tell them about what I do. They go, that's it? I go, yeah, that's it. <laughs> this is what works. People somehow going think that you're not working out six days a week, two hours a day. It's just, just, it's just a lot of misinformation. But going back to what, what Thomas just said, you know, you have these athletes who feel like they weren't training enough. You know, on the flip side of that, you have these trainees who think they're overtraining all the freaking time. Right. Just if they lift a couple of weights, all of a sudden, you know, I'm gonna take a few days off. I'm, I don't want to overtrain, <laughs> dude. Yeah, you haven't even started true. yet. <laughs> Yeah, the average person sitting on the couch with their remote control and they're worried about overtraining. So you got to get some training in first. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's actually a good segue into um, you know, one of the other things I was thinking we would talk about. Oh, uh, just real, just real quick, Tom. How much sure. does this device cost, and, and where would you buy it if you wanted to purchase it? Um, so if I want to do uh, so, machine is about thirty grand. And if you wow. want to buy it, be, uh, <laughs> I think uh, I think Magnaceutical dot com is the. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, I wasn't prepared to market anything. I apologize. I don't know the website name. No, that's okay. Um, Thirty grand, uh, huh? Let's yeah. get them as a sponsor for the show. You know? <laughs> that's right. There we go. I'll we'll call want, them up. We want, hey, we man. Want, we want a ten percent commission on each. Yeah. Day, you know? ten, <laughs> we get yeah, one of our try out so we can view it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to send each of us one for free, of course, so we can 
share our experiences with it, and then we get 10% of each sale. All we need to do is get one listener to buy it per month you know? <laughs> or year. You know? what, uh, what got me intrigued in the technology is that um, I have uh, – uh, we work with uh, people that have some serious chronic pain issues here, and one of my uh, friends who um, has a, something called a reflex – uh, sympathetic dystrophy, or sometimes it's referred to as a complex pain regional syndrome type 1. So basically, he's got like this burning sensation in his lower leg, and mm. they've done all kinds of very extreme surgical procedures, and it's still you know not getting better. So he um, basically went out, he tried using one of these machines, and he could feel a difference immediately. So that got me intrigued because, you know, he's someone that I personally know that's tried a lot of different things. And uh, most of the strategies he's tried are more surgical and drug-related. So when he tried it and got a result, I thought, well, it's worth looking into. And so then as I started looking more into the research behind it, I was very impressed with it. <clears throat> so that's kind of the reason why we got it here. And, um, I've used it now with uh, lots of guys with really with chronic back pain. Yeah, and essentially the way I kind of look at it is it reduces like uh, dysfunction in the nervous system, so their body is not as stressed out. And then allows me to go to the gym side of the building and then do some exercises that we could teach them how to get rid of tension. And if you start to feel pain, what should you do? Because one of the things I find surprising is um, 100% of people that come here, when I ask them, you know, has anyone taught you? how to get rid of pain when you have it. That does that you're not allowed to take a drug or a supplement or any medication or, you know, just on your own, you're by yourself, how do you eliminate pain? And a hundred percent say I never heard of that and no one's ever talked to me about that. And these are things that, you know, every medical school teaches basic concepts in neurology about the nervous system, about neuron distribution around the body and how the brain pays attention to some neurons more than others. And yet, despite that, there's not a translation into a practical use of that information. So we could have uh, people right out of surgery, and they can't move their ankle. Let's say if it was an ankle surgery, or they can't straighten their knee, and they can't move because they're in pain. And we can show them very simple tools like, right, take a chamois or take a tissue, something that has a pleasant sensation against your skin, and just move it around the face almost like in a square pattern. And keep doing that until you feel the pain go away and the afflicted you know, body part. And within 30 seconds or two minutes, they look at me and they start laughing. They go, what the hell? How did you know that? And like, because everybody has neurons in their face. There's no one of us that are born without neurons. I mean, I'm, I guess there possibly could be some rare genetic thing, but I haven't come across yeah. that. And what happens is your brain pays more attention to the neurons in your face. So if you have neurons in other parts of your body, one, the density is going to probably be a little bit less, and two, it's a lower, it's like lower on a totem pole of neurons, if you will. So if you feel, if you have a pleasant sensation coming from the face, the brain, the brain's going to say, oh, I feel good. And it's going to basically ignore the, the pain signals from the other areas. And so now you can do your necessary exercises or rehab without getting worse. And so these are, you know, there's lots of stuff like that we do here with simple tools, like we use coffee stars and tissue. 
And then we teach people how to do this stuff on their own. And we always make a joke, hey, man, this is going to be expensive. It's going to be about six cents. And then (laughs) we're showing people, like, these are real-world tools who everybody has access to. And the idea is that no one's gone over it before because, you know, if your educational model is surgery, but when you have the opportunity to look and test different things and see the responses... You're not really restricted or limited in any way. And so from my perspective, I know if, like if I was to use myself as an example, um, if I have pain, I'm open to taking, you know, depending on the intensity of the pain. If it was like really extreme, I'll take any drug I need to, so I'm pain-free right yeah. now. Yeah. But having said that, I don't want to be on any drug or supplement the rest of my life that I'm dependent on, it, right? So mm-hmm. on the one hand, I want to solve the problem, but on the other hand, I don't want to develop a dependency of any kind. And what I started finding is that as more and more people uh, get into the habit of taking something when they have pain, um, they then stop learning or they stop thinking about how to get out of pain without that strategy. In other words, if you have to take a Celebrex every time you have pain or let's say an ibuprofen, well then every time you have pain, that's all you know how to do. You never learn anything else. But if right. I teach people right. other options, like here's ways to move, here's movements you could do or tools you could use, what happens then over time, they get better and better at those other things. And now they never need Celebrex or Advil ibuprofen because anytime they have pain, they know what to do that doesn't require a supplement or a medication. What, what so, would you recommend? Um, or I, I have bone-on-bone arthritis in my left elbow. What would you recommend? for that, if anything. Yeah. So first, um, I'll challenge the concept of bone on bone. And what I mean by that is um, I've been told by 100 physicians that my left hip is bone on bone. And I'd ask them, well, um, does the MRI go to absolute zero? And everyone looks (laughs) at me. There's no MRI machine that goes down to a single cell. And some estimates, there might be 2 million to 10 million cells. I haven't confirmed that, so I don't know if that's accurate. But let's yeah. just say if there's 1,000 cells, right? So we're way you know, below 2 million. So if you've got 1,000 cells there and they can't see it, then how would anyone know it's bone on bone, right? So, right, right. And um, what happened was I talked to an orthopedic uh, doctor who uh, affiliate, was affiliated with Yale. He's now retired in Spain. He's living a beautiful life, and I envy him. And uh, he's got access to, like, beautiful beaches and stuff. And I was talking to him one day, and he's like, he goes to me, how do you know you're bone on bone? Did you look inside the <laughs> joint? I go, uh, well, I actually haven't. I mean, I got all these MRIs. I got, like, a lot of MRIs. And they'll kind of say bone on bone. He's like, well, there's limitations to how much detail you can see from that method. And what yeah. I can tell you is when I have actually... I've gone into people's joints, we've taken biopsies, and we've looked at it under an electron microscope where we could explode this stuff to millions of times above normal. And we would basically see that diseased cartilage is black under this, this situation, and then we would do these treatments, and we can convert the diseased cartilage to a white, fluffy cartilage. So then... What, what is what would happen? I mean, he goes, uh, did we create new chondrocytes? Was it bad chondrocytes that became good chondrocytes? He's like, the methods, you know, and, and the way that we were doing things, we don't really know. We just know that whatever was there, it got better. And so we don't really know, like, when someone is bone on bone, if that's the case or not. But what has to happen, though? Well, you, you would think if it's literally bone on bone, you're not going to be able to move it. 
You're not going to be able to bend it. I mean, without extreme pain, even without, even if you can work through the pain, you would think it's not. It's just not going to move. Yeah. Well, so some details though. So the incidence of osteoarthritis in the elbow is the same as the knee. Okay. But now think about how many times have you ever heard someone get a elbow replacement? Almost never, right? But you hear about knee replacements far more often. Oh, and yeah. part of that is loading. So, you know, right. when your arm is hanging out side, the loading in the elbow is such that it's separating, you know, the proximal and distal ends within the joint. So there's, there's basically like a mild traction, if you will. Yeah. When you're now uh, flexing or, let's say, ex- extending that elbow joint through with a load, let's say you got a dumbbell or a barbell or something, or even holding mm-hmm. like a squat behind your back or something. Right. Well, now there's going to be some compression of those bones inside the elbow joint so surfaces would interact. Um, what I would look at first is, uh, in theory, if let's just say it took you 300,000 repetitions of different movements to get you from, let's say, when your elbow was its healthiest to now where it's just say this is your most damaged in your life. Yeah. In theory, it would take 300,000 reps to go backwards. So the tissue can be remodeled. It's been shown in almost every tissue in the body. And so I'm extrapolating here, like, you know, because it happened in the heart doesn't guarantee it could happen in cartilage in the elbow. But we yeah. do know that um, under the right conditions, we see liver, kidneys, heart. We see neurons in different parts of the body. Uh, we see bone. Like all these tissues, muscle, there's regeneration capabilities. Some of that regeneration capability is from local stem cells in a tissue. Some of that is just from a combination of uh, stimulating the existing cells there in a healthy way. So in the case of uh, arthritis or osteoarthritis, first making sure there's building blocks present. Um, In terms of uh, glucosamine, I think the N-acetyl-D glucosamine form is better than glucosamine sulfate or glucosamine hydrochloride. But the best form of glucosamine, the one that's been actually shown to reverse cartilage, it's not available in the United States. It's, um, I think it's called N-butyrol D uh, glucosamine. And it was uh, developed by scientists in Canada. And it's been in the vet market, but it's very difficult to obtain. Otherwise, I would be on it <laughs> for my own body. Um, but yeah. it's, just, it's mostly used for uh, dogs right now. But that's actually huh. been shown to um, reverse advanced chronic arthritis, which is different than a lot of studies are done with, um, let's say, different supplements, but it's an acute or injury type of arthritis in animals, and they show they can reverse it, but it doesn't translate well to the chronic type of arthritis that most people have. Um, so yeah, have you, have you heard of avocado unsaponifiables? Yeah, so... Yeah, so the original, yeah, so the original um, material was this uh, Pisaclean product from France, you know, and I probably oh, right. am butchering the name. It was a French product that now lots of companies uh, have, a, you know, variations of it available. The danger is you don't know who's just like, you know, you don't send some, the one form is patented and, you know, the exact chemical structures inside are, you know, are, are protected. No one knows exactly. You don't know if company A, B, or C has something similar. Um, I can tell you that right. the data is very favorable. 
when I look at a lot of that stuff, I've tested on myself, I've tested on people specifically, we call them ASU, avocado, soy, unsapinifiables. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't, you know, see long-term people saying, hey, I notice a difference. But when I, when I look at the data, let's just say regardless of uh, whether it's a drug or a supplement or surgery, for the strategies that have been done to regenerate cartilage, uh, the fastest that I could find, which actually, you know, it's confirmed what there's like an MRI pre and post, is about a year. In a case of like joint injections like PRP and or ozone or ACS or prolotherapy, you know, the patients in those studies may have had 12 to 40 or so procedures done where it's like to be injected every so often, like every right. two weeks or something over a year. And then you can see there's a change in the MRI. Well, now you translate that to, you know, what are you willing to do to get the result you want? You know, and so, um, like for my left hip, I've spent probably $6 million over the last, I don't want to say 20 years, probably a little bit less than that. And I've, I've done like probably, uh, I don't know, four stem cell therapies to that hip. And it has not gotten worse. My MRI show, it's actually about the same, maybe a tiny bit better. I have no yeah. osteonecrosis of the hip. Um, so, But I'm not at the level, you know, I can't move the way I want. So right. my expectations, I would say, they were failed. You know, they, they, my expectations were not met, let's say. So I would say it's a Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a lot of money to spend without yeah. getting significant yeah. results. My expectations are going to be really high if I spend that yeah. kind of money. Yeah. Well, so but the the, the where that um, the way that we would sort of let's say if you came in here and said, right, "What are you going to do for my elbow?" Yeah. Where the one value I produce immediately for people is, well, you're not going to have to spend six million dollars because I've already done it, and <laughs> I got you know I got all this equipment here. We kind of have a good sense. So right. since we're talking about arthritis, um, let me share with you the technologies that are most promising right now. Okay. So one that magnetic field uh, therapy. Because think about it reduces uh, underlying tension throughout the nervous system, right. which could be contributing. So think of it as a two-way street. So let's say the when there's contact pressure inside your elbow, your body's going to know this. So like if you and I, let's say if we had a social conversation at dinner, we might say something like everything in the body is connected. But now, you know, if let's just say... I had to present at a scientific conference or a medical conference, and I have to basically explain how an organism in the mouth can lead to arthritis in someone's elbow. You know, I got to be able to present a lot of chemical and biochemical, physiological details. Otherwise, you know, doctors that are attending like this guy's an idiot, he's a quack, he's a liar, whatever you're going to say. But the fact is, it's true. <laughs> we already got the mechanisms to show this, and different research groups are showing things. And so now from a big picture perspective, if you came to me and said, look, I want this problem solved and I don't want it to get worse, I would say, well, let's look at all the studies done. Hey, there's data showing that organisms in the mouth contribute to inflammation that leads to arthritis. So let's address that. There's organisms in the digestive tract that you know, contribute to inflammation that leads to osteoarthritis. Let's address that. There's vitamin and mineral issues inside the body that if they're low, you cannot repair tissue. So we would kind of look at these different areas, and now you're going, you know, at least in the right direction. So even if your elbow did not get better, the rest of you is not going to get worse. So it's, a, right. it's still a positive result. But in terms of, let's say, um, direct intervention for the elbow, the stuff I'm looking at right now is a magnetic field outside the body. And we have these fiber optic LEDs 
that um, so I'm trained on this, but generally speaking, I can only do it in research or, you know, if the doctors here want me to do it on it, I wouldn't necessarily do it on, let's say, patients. The doctors here would actually put this fiber optic LED, which emits a wavelength of light. So basically, it's like sticking, you could think of it as like LED flashlight inside your elbow. And what that does is that there's one color. So think of it as like a catheter that goes in a joint space. It's very, very tiny. And the catheter is almost like a shielding. And then we put different fiber optic cables in and out of this catheter. And then um, one would be, say, increases ATP levels of your chondrocytes. Another one gets rid of inflammation. Another one will kill off any organisms that would be in that joint space. Um, what's surprising is how many times... Um, they find bacteria or other types of organisms in people's joint spaces, and in theory, you know, they're supposed to be a, the joint's supposed to be sealed, like nothing should be getting in or out of that. Um, right. But they find that practically, that's not exactly true. Lots of people have openings behind their knee joint. It's typically where it'll be like a Baker cyst or something that's formed, and the suspicion is that there's similar things that could happen to any synovial joint in the body. Um, orthopedic surgeons that have gone in out of joints a lot, they'll usually say, oh, yeah, I've seen that. But if you actually look at the research or any like medical anatomical reference books, no one really talks about a lot of that stuff. So it's kind of like guys with experience know it exists, but it's never really spelled out. And I think it's because it, it happens at a minor level or in a minor amount. So no one really uh, is concerned about it, you know, across the board, but I think practically it could be an explanation why some people, let's say, why doesn't there, you know, why doesn't a body part heal? And uh, that's, uh, so that, 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 let's say that fiber optic thing in the joint would be a great tool. Now, the question is how many times would you need to do the therapy and how long does it take before? I don't have an answer to that yet. I got, these are all new technologies I have coming in. Um, what I just had done recently for my hip I went to see a, um, a doctor in Boca Raton who's got an amazing center there. And we've collaborated over the years. He's a pretty sharp guy. And what he's done is he's figured out a way to stimulate the production of a new type of stem cell in your own body. So he basically jacked up my ability to make something called uh, V-cells, which are very small embryonic-like stem cells. Then they collect the stem cells from my blood, and then they basically turn them on, and they give them back to me in the form of an IV, and then they inject them, in my case, in my left hip. So I had this done uh, last uh, Wednesday, so it's not even a week yet, right? Um, which, uh, what are we today? Today's the 31st, so tomorrow would be a week. So it's too early. Like I won't know the results of this for another three, maybe four months before we get a sense of, okay, what happened? You know, how much did it help? Right. right. So those would be like things that are very impressive. Now, I got tons of stuff here from Germany and Israel, like countries all over the world. Like we have these technologies that, you know, we have to, they have to use approved for use in, in different scenarios. But essentially what I kind of find is like um, most of the stuff really does a good job at managing pain. It does not like build up your joint brand new. And the stuff that does build up your joint brand new um, that's typically you have to go to other countries for that. But then when you go to those other countries, there's no standard. Like you don't know, like for example, um, the model for stem cells for a while was, would be like 
We take um, stem cells from your bone marrow or from your body fat. We grow them outside your body. And then um, some places, different countries, would try to make those cells become chondrocytes. And they would put those chondrocytes back into your damaged joint with um, some type of spackling or, or what they call a scaffolding procedure. And what they found is that as these cells grow and expand and go through different passages, the phenotype changes. And so now as a result, the type of cartilage that's produced, it's, it's harder, it has more calcium in it. So it's not as spongy and soft as you would want it. So it does absorb impact and shock and some of the loading forces. So it isn't until this year it has been the first paper published that's been showing now how to prevent that. So that means all the people that were getting these procedures done before, while they may have had the cartilage regrow, it's not exactly what they, you know, as, as they were born with, let's say. It's like a little bit harder, a little bit rougher. So pretty soon, and who knows when that is, but I'm going to say within the next two to five years, um, the data is coming out so fast that we're going to be able to have some cool toys to, to help people. And one of the things I've been working on right now is, are you guys familiar with iontophoresis patches at all? That sounds vaguely familiar. I'm so not, what, what exactly is that? So think of it as how, um, the best way to describe it, think of it as like a giant Band-Aid, like, like almost like a rectangular Band-Aid. Uh-huh. And, you know, like there's an adhesive on one side of a Band-Aid and the other side could be, you know, like a latex-type material or something else, like a, like a spongier type of material. So the the band the, this uh, on the inside is like a chamber that you could put some sort of uh, medication or some substance that you want to deliver to the skin, and there's like a little battery inside, almost like you could give it as like a disposable type of uh, watch battery or something, like those you know, flat silver type batteries, and then you put it over the damaged area, and then it uses electricity to sort of drive whatever the substance was in the liquid inside the patch through the skin to the damaged joint. And one of the things that's been coming out over and over again is that vitamin C appears to enhance chondrogenesis, which is basically formation of cartilage. And so we're looking at now, so when we talk about, um, I guess right before we started, we were talking about high-dose vitamin C IVs and stuff like that. Right. I know we could do, you know, it's easy to get high-dose vitamin C into someone's blood. That part's, you know, lots of guys could do that, no problem. What's not clear to me, though, is, well, if I did that, does it actually get inside your joint because you have a synovial capsule and it's supposed to be sealed? And there's no standard for measuring synovial fluid. In other words, like, there's research studies, like, if there's inflammatory substances in the fluid, that that could be harmful. So in my mind, what I'm kind of thinking about is, we do what's called a lavage, where we kind of irrigate out or wash out the inflamed liquid that's going to be in that joint, because there's going to be some stuff in there that's not good. Then replace that with a um, high molecular weight hyaluronic acid, which is essentially lubricant, and then put into that some things like vitamin C and some other substances at a dose that basically drives chondrogenesis, and then figure out how to do some type of cyclic loading to regrow the cartilage. So you need stimulation of the chondrocytes for them to lay down cartilage matrix. But it appears that the stimulation is it kind of like uh, it, it changes and is progressive over time. So it would kind of be like, you know, like if you were just um, getting back to, let's say if you were squatting before, now you haven't squatted in years, and let's say you squatted 1,000 pounds, you're probably not going to squat starting with 1,000 pounds, right? You may start with right. a bar. 
you know, get yeah. get your groove back and get stuff back. Yeah, exactly. So kind of think about what your elbow joint, you know, you would have been lifting heavy at some point. Now you start to realize, hey, this is aggravating my condition. I'm going to tone down the loading. Right. So maybe initially you might just do mobility work. Like you may, there may not be a true load in the sense you're used to from your past, but there's still going to be forces transmitted through the elbow joint. And then over time, you might do that motion, let's say, instead of an air, now you might do some mobility work in the water. And then you might try doing some stuff either in rice or sand or kind of like some of the martial arts movements that could be done where you could fill up like a, a five or ten, uh, ten-gallon paint uh, bucket with water, I'm sorry, with uh, rice or sand. And kind of as you get stronger, you just bury your hand deeper in the rice or the sand and move it around so the resistance would be because of all the rice and sand above that point. And then over time, you've got sort of like this, let's say, mild progressive loading, and that helps to kind of get the chondrocytes activated and formed. And then you would take, um, I think collagen peptides are way better than avocado, soy, and saponifiables. It's one of the few substances, I've, that's a supplement, it's not a drug, it's a few supplement, substances I've seen that has MRI data that shows it regenerates cartilage in every joint of the body. So it doesn't matter mm. where, the spine, elbow, hip, knee. So, you know, in terms of uh, long-term... Well, what's that, sorry, what's the, what's the name of that again? So it'd be called collagen peptides. Okay, okay. And um, I'm trying those, to think... Those, uh, are, those are collagens derived from some animal <clears throat> tissue, I'm assuming. Yeah, so years ago, um, there was stuff from uh, cows and stuff from chickens, even roosters. And yeah. that, that stuff, they would do like... Um, especially the chicken, rooster stuff, would be like 10 to 40 milligrams a day. Then they started looking at these other types of uh, collagen peptides where they've gone, you know, 10, 20, maybe 30 grams a day. And uh, now if I look at all the research, where, where the way I see it going is I think pretty soon the collagen peptides are going to come from marine products, like basically some type of fish. Right. And the reason is they get the anti-inflammatory effects of the fish oil components along with the cartilage-building aspects of the collagen peptides. And um, over time, they'll probably show that that works superior to uh, collagen peptides. We have, um, so we use a raw material collagen peptide that comes from a German manufacturer. The company's called Fortigel, F-O-R-T-I-G-E-L. Mm-hmm. And I stack that with, uh, basically, it's an anti-inflammatory extract uh, some herb, and uh, basically the active component is uh, much uh, its much more effective than, let's say, Celebrex in a milligram per milligram basis. And it's because it's natural, you don't get, like, uh, you don't have to worry about GI stress issues, like it's going to damage your digestive tract. But right. the rationale is that if you inhibit inflammation, you inhibit the enzymes that break down cartilage. So that's why you need to do something that controls inflammation. And then because you inhibit, let's say, the catabolic state of the joint, you then provide these building blocks that increase the anabolic aspects of the joint. And so then you have a net gain over time. But keep in mind, let's say if you did everything exactly that your body needs right now, the research is pretty clear. It's probably going to take a year to regrow everything to the level you want. Yeah. This is where it's like, okay, let like so for example here, you know, I got the clinic, I got doctors that are injecting me, and now I gotta travel somewhere. So in the middle I'm getting injections every week and I gotta go where somewhere and come back and it's now I missed two or three weeks of injections because I was traveling. Right. 
So right. now there's a loss of continuity of care. And so now if, if let's say, you know, it's too early to see what the end result is, but let's say three months from now, I don't have a result. It could simply be to, because I broke up the cycle, you know what I mean? Like right. you got this process rolling. And so this is the challenge where I'd say right now, from a you know, current medical perspective, ideally it's kind of like one treatment and done, right? Because it's hard for yeah. people's lifestyles to keep doing well, something. Well, I also don't think that most people give something enough time to work. For example, glucosamine. Jerry Brainham was on the show, and he talked about how you're not really going to get the full benefits until 12 weeks in. So if someone tries it for 30 days and says, ah, I'm not really feeling anything, and then they stop, they're missing out. Yeah. Well, I know in my case, I want everything yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> but most people do, too. <laughs> I mean, people people want to make six figures their first year in business, but your goal should be to still be in business after that first year is a more realistic goal. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, especially though, I'll say uh, more serious nature that when someone's got pain or suffering, right? Oh yeah, they've no usually doubt. been dealing with it for a while. So right. the last thing you want to think is, oh shit, I got to do this for another year. You well, know what I mean? I think, then I think you have to do something else, such as, okay, you're going to do this because it's going to be more immediate, and then this is the more long-term approach, so that you don't have. To, maybe you take some yeah. kind of pain relief method, which just dulls the sensation it doesn't address the underlying issue but at the same time you're doing something else that over time will address the underlying issue so that you don't have the pain as a result yeah and that you know so um so some of our let's just say like workout philosophy goals here um i hear people like so we get uh, a lot of retired nfl guys a lot of let's say military guys navy seals or even fighters you know, all these guys are like hardcore, tough dudes. Like, none of these guys I'd ever want to get into a fight with because I know I'm going to go down fast. So as I'm working with these guys, you know, the one thing I always hear is that, um, well, I could handle pain. I could handle a lot of pain. or I'm, I'm really tough. <laughs> pain doesn't bother me. I'm like, you know, right, right, right. that sounds good, but let me tell you how your nervous system interprets this. Right. The more you have pain, and the longer you ignore it, the stronger the signals from your brain and spinal cord. So if you want to tough it out for 50 years, that's okay. <laughs> but when it finally gets to that point, you can't handle it. It's also yeah. Well, I think I think I think whether you can handle it or not is the wrong question. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get massages once a week, whether I feel great or not, as a preemptive strike, if you will. I'm not waiting until pain kicks in to get a massage. I get it every week so that she fixes all the problems I created that week via my training, lifestyle, whatever it may be, so that it doesn't accumulate over time and then spiral into real pain, which takes a long time to recover from. Now, is it because I can't handle the discomfort of being sore and minor pain? No, of course not. I can deal with that. But why would I want to deal with that? And also, you have to ask yourself, where is this leading? It's going to get worse. It's not going to just, you're not just going to maintain that pain. It's going to get worse over time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, um, so like, you know, like, you know, you could practice a skill. Let's say if someone's learning how to swing a baseball bat or a golf club or a tennis racket, the more you keep practicing, the better you get at it. Well, it's the same way that pain is. The more you keep doing something with pain, the better you get at feeling pain. And so what happens is then, you know, you can come up with different coping strategies to ignore it, but eventually it's just going to overcome 
Yeah. Well, I mean, Louis Simmons said, I know you've trained with Westside, so I'm going to bring up yeah. Louis Simmons. I heard an interview with Joe Rogan and Louis Simmons, and Louis said that I'm just in pain all the time. It's just my reality. You know, I've, I've been in pain for so long that it's just part of life. And that sounds kind of depressing to me, man. You know? Yeah, well, that, well that, that, whether, whether someone's a wuss or not, and Louis is obviously very tough, but I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to follow a workout strategy where I'm just going to be in pain for the rest of my life. Yeah. And well, the challenge too is, you know, the longer you have the pain, the, let's say the, the greater the threat to the body. And it may, it may be, so first, so in theory. There's other consequences other than yeah. what you're just feeling. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, now you're, you're, it's a constant threat. So typically adrenal glands are just depleted because you're always stressed out. Right. And um, it may take really weird, creative strategies. Like I've had uh, colleagues of mine that would tell me stories. These are doctors tell me stories I've had with their cases where someone comes in, they have some really rare pain issue. No drugs work. No supplements work. You know, every exercise hurts them, makes them worse. And he had this idea that, you know, in theory, anyone that has pain can be taught how to get out of pain. So that's like theoretical concept. The problem is practically, let's say if you came in and it's going to take me eight hours to figure out how to get you out of pain, would you really want to spend eight hours here? You know what I mean? And so these are like the practical challenges, especially when if I just tried seven hours and nothing worked, (laughs) you're not thinking, hey, let's do one more hour. You're thinking at that point, this guy doesn't know what he's doing, right? So that's what my colleague is telling me. He's like, I'm working with this woman all day and nothing's working. And, you know, she's hearing how great he is, and he can't produce a result. So she's thinking now he's terrible. And meanwhile, the guy's good. <clears throat> so finally he said, what do you do when you're stressed out? And she's like, she kind of, she says, well, I, I scratch my head, and I do this thing. He's like, show me. So he goes, does that hurt you? And she goes, no, not at all. So then he's like, okay. So he finds a spot on her head, and he starts applying pressure to it, and she says she feels better. <laughs> So he kind of went with her habit, like, like you know, when we're all stressed out, we have certain idiosyncrasies and patterns, weird things we might do. So, right. he went, you know, we realized after eight hours, oh, I just got to work with what she already is doing. <laughs> and eventually, he got her to the point where she could move and do things without pain. <laughs> but that's not like, you know, that's not like something you're going to read in a medical book somewhere. You know, it's not something someone's going to be able to tell you. You're right. Because one, you don't know what that other person's doing. You know, two, it's like too many different vectors coming together. <laughs> it's uh, it's funny. It's funny the habits people have. They're just building on what you said. When they have discomfort or anxiety, I remember as a kid, if we made too much noise downstairs, right, we woke up my dad. He'd come down in his his boxers and t-shirt. He'd be scratching the top of his head at his balls. <laughs> you know, like guys, shut up, go to sleep. You know, it was like every single time. Like he probably wasn't even aware that he was doing that. That was just his his go-to anxiety move. You know, and it, was, it reminds me of that movie Rounders with Matt Damon, where he's a professional poker player, and he can just walk in the room and without seeing anyone's cards, he knows what everyone has just from their body posture and their facial expressions. We just we give away so much that we're, we're not aware of. That's part one of our discussion with Dr. Thomas Inkler. Make sure you check out part two of our discussion on episode 200 as we talk about the next level in technology to help you with recovery, breathing techniques, and how to break through plateaus. All this and more on the next episode of the Live Life Aggressively show with Mike Mahler and Sincere Hogan. Until then, take care, everybody. Catch you on the next one.